Hello, I'm Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford, and on behalf of CME Outfitters, I'd like to welcome you to today's educational program, an activity entitled Evaluation, Treatment, and Non-Stigmatizing Care for Adolescents with Obesity, Critical Components of Future Health. Today's program is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk. The CME activity is certified by the CME Outfitters, a jointly accredited provider of continuing education for clinicians worldwide. Once again, I'm Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. I'm an obesity medicine physician scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital and an associate professor of medicine and pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. And I would love to join, have you join and welcome my dear colleague and friend, Dr. Angela Golden. Welcome, Angie. Thank you, Fatima. I am so excited to be working with you on a project again, and especially something this important. I look forward to our discussion. Well, thank you. It's going to be a delight to just be with you and in your presence as we really share this information. So let's go over these learning objectives. We're going to implement the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines for evaluating adolescents with obesity in pediatric practice. We're going to apply evidence-based pathways for initiating, monitoring, and continuing therapy for adolescents with obesity. And finally, we will engage in empathetic, non-stigmatizing communication with adolescents about long-term weight management. So obesity is a common, complex, and often persistent disease associated with serious health and social consequences. It affects 14.4 million children and adolescents in the U.S. is often stigmatized as a reversible consequence of personal choices. Genetic, physiologic, socioeconomic, and environmental factors are at play, and there are updated standards in the care for evaluating and treating children with obesity that reflect a deeper recognition of this widespread disease. And now let's move to part one. We're evaluating adolescents with or at risk for obesity and obesity-related diseases with my dear friend, Dr. Angie Golden. Angie? Thank you so much, Fatima. This section will address our first learning objective, implement AAP guidelines for evaluating adolescents with obesity in pediatric practice. But first, let's get our audience involved with a quick audience response question. Which of the following AAP recommendations include evaluating a child's access to nutritious food choices? Mental behavioral health screening, annual measurement of body mass index, BMI, social determinants of health, physical exam, or E, I'm not sure. Great, 57% of you were right there, the correct answer is social determinants of health, and we're going to learn more about that in just a moment. But let's meet Marcos, a 14-year-old Hispanic male. He's been referred to us by the school nurse for his obesity. He's only on one medication, and that's only in the spring and fall for his allergies. You can see he has a family history of obesity, as well as some pretty significant cardiometabolic disease. We see Marcos weighs 227.4 pounds and is 5 feet 7 inches. So that makes his BMI 35.6 kilograms per meter squared. However, for children, we use the percentage of the 95th percentile to determine 
what their obesity looks like. And he is 132% of the 95th percentile on the extended BMI chart that we see here from the CDC. This slide provides us with the classification of obesity based on the percentile range. And we can see as we look through this, class one obesity would be between the 95th percentile to 120% of the 95th percentile. But we can see that Marcos comes in at that class two obesity, the 120th percent to less than 140th percent of the 95th percentile. So let's, let's see what the AAP 2023 guidelines can really help us with from one of the key action statements. And this particular guideline provides us with an evidence quality of B and moderate strength for the need to measure height and weight and the recommendation to utilize that CDC growth chart as we've shown that we did for Marcos. But let's return to a little bit more history for Marcos. He tells us that he doesn't have any food allergies or restrictions, and that's helpful when we start to think about how to help him eat differently. And he's tried low-carb eating previously, but as soon as he stopped, he regained his weight. And we all know with obesity that if you stop treating it, which is basically what he did when he stopped the eating plan, weight regain occurs as part of the pathophysiology of the disease. So we, we want to do a little deeper dive into things about food with him. And on questioning, we learned that his family doesn't have access in the, to any kind of neighborhood grocery. In fact, the nearest grocery store is over an hour away, and they often rely on local convenience stores and fast food options. The 2023 AAP guideline has a strong recommendation for us to be including an evaluation for obesity-related comorbidities and complications in children with obesity or overweight. But it also talks strongly about looking at a very comprehensive history that includes things like mental health screening and the social determinants of health. So I think it's important for us to take a few minutes and really look at what does that mean? What are we looking at for the social determinants of health? Well, it certainly includes race and ethnicity, financial resources, and what kind of community is the person living in? Is it a rural? Is it a neighborhood? And as we saw with Marco's family, not having access to fresh produce. We also want to know what the health literacy is. And in our adolescence, we want not only their literacy, but also their parents, their family literacy, as well as what does their social network look like? These all play a strong role in our patient's health and wellness, and we need to be assessing these things. So as we return to Marco's case, we see that Marcos has had normal weight until about the age of seven, and then he began to gain. He attended a local children's obesity program but he didn't have any long-term success with this. He tells us that he just doesn't seem to be able to lose weight and keep it off. That's true in my obesity practice for adults and adolescents. That They talk about it all the time. They can lose the weight, but it seems to come back and they have really a lot of trouble keeping it off. And we know from the pathophysiology of obesity that that's exactly what happens. Obesity starts weight gain begins, and then there's this second part of it where there's a metabolic adaptation that defends that higher fat mass. 
as we look at more information about Marcos, we see his vital signs here. His blood pressure doesn't look too bad. The rest of his vitals look pretty good. But his body fat percentage is 35.2, and normal would be under 22%. And his hemoglobin A1C is 6.2, and that meets the CDC, ADA, and the AAP definition for prediabetes, which is anything over 5.7. You know, we go ahead and get a good physical exam, top to bottom. And the first thing that we notice is the hyperpigmentation around his neck, as well, of course, as we're just as he walks in, we can see the increased amounts of adiposity. But the rest of his exam really has nothing that's abnormal or concerning that we're going to look into. So here's the diagnosis that we have. We have obesity, acanthos nigricans, and prediabetes. And as providers, our concerns are the obesity and prediabetes. The acanthosis nigricans is really just a reflection of that insulin resistance with this prediabetes. But Marcos' concern is skin discoloration. He hates that it looks like his skin looks like it's dirty all the time. So he really wants us to address that. And Fatima, I'm going to hand it back over to you now. Thank you so much, Angie, for taking us through that case of Marcos. I think it really gives us a lot of insight on how we think about um, the diagnosis of individuals with obesity and really looking at all of those major aspects, particularly in that realm of social determinants of health, was very, very helpful. Um, and so now let's go forward as we look at the early treatment of adolescents with obesity. And this really delves into that learning objective number two, where we're going to apply evidence-based pathways for initiating, monitoring, and continuing therapy for adolescents with obesity. And to start this section, we want to start with an audience response. We want to keep you guys engaged. So in this particular question, it says the STEPS teen study showed that adolescents with obesity receiving once weekly 2.4 milligrams of subcutaneous semaglutide along with lifestyle interventions, achieved what percent change in body mass at week 68 versus placebo? Is it 7%, 12%, 16%, 23%, or I'm not sure? Why don't you go and answer? I see those answers coming in. We're really excited about you guys participating and interacting. Right, so now the results are in, and you know what? You guys are pretty savvy here. When we look at this particular slide, what we see is that um, a majority of you answered about 16%, and this is indeed right. To be exact, from the study, 16.1% of individuals, um, or 16.1% bo body change in body mass at 68 weeks. And looking at that semaglutide group, at that treatment dose of 2.4 milligrams versus placebo. So let's look at what the new guidelines do say about treatment. And we're going to start looking here. And you can see that this is evidence quality, specifically looking at treatment in the CPG or the clinical practice guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics. We see it gets a quality grade of B, which and a strong um, strength in terms of the recommendation. And it states that 
pediatricians and other healthcare providers should treat overweight, which is the BMI of greater than the 85th percentile and less than the 95th percentile, and obesity, which would be a BMI greater than or equal to the 95th percentile in children and adolescents. Following the principles of the medical home and the chronic care model, using a family-centered and non-stigmatizing approach that acknowledges obesity's biologic, social, and structural drivers, like mentioned by Dr. Golden a bit earlier. And as we continue to look at this idea of treatment, you can see that this gets a moderate strength evidence. Remember, previously we were looking at strong, and it states that pediatricians and other primary health care providers should use motivational interviewing to engage patients and families in treating overweight, which is a BMI greater than or equal to the 85th percentile, to less than the 95th percentile, and obesity, which is BMI greater than or equal to the 95th percentile. And of course, we have a lot more to present as we look at issues surrounding treatment as we get into additional moderate strength evidence. Now, look at this when we're looking at this particular thing. We're looking at those age six years and older, okay? That's that B um, strength of quality. Notice how when we see a C strength of quality is for those younger individuals between the ages of two and five. So not quite as strong um, evidence for two to five years old. And the moderate strength of this recommendation, which states that pediatricians and other primary health care providers should provide or refer children that are six years and older, remember that grade B, and provide and may provide or refer children that are between two and five with overweight and obesity to intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment. Now, health behavior and lifestyle treatment is more effective with greater contact hours. The more the interaction, the better the results. The most effective treatment, however, includes 26 or more hours of face-to-face, family-based, multi-component treatment over a three to 12 month period. So I want you to recognize the level of intensity associated with what this um, in-person contact is. And I want you to notice here as we continue thinking about treatment, um, this is an evidence quality of B that pediatricians and other healthcare providers should offer adolescents 12 years and older with that BMI greater than 95th percentile weight loss pharmacotherapy according to medication indications, risk, and benefits as an adjunct to healthy behavior and lifestyle therapy. And this was a major shift from what we saw in those 2007 guidelines, which were the last guidelines prior to the current AAP guidelines and their CPG recommendations. Going further, we can look at this, we can see an evidence quality of C here, and we can see that pediatricians and other primary healthcare providers should offer referral for adolescents 13 years and older with severe obesity. And just to go back to what Dr. Golden mentioned, this would be that BMI greater than or equal to 120th percentile of the 95th percentile for both age and sex for evaluation for metabolic and bariatric surgery to local or regional comprehensive multidisciplinary pediatric metabolic and bariatric surgery centers, much like we have here at the Massachusetts General Hospital. And so when we look at Marcos and look at his management options, right? Dr. Golden presented that lovely case about Marcos. Um, we wanna think about, is this a family-centered and non-stigmatizing approach? Are we engaging with motivational interviewing? Or are we looking at intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment? What about weight loss pharmacotherapy and, and our treatment modalities that could be entertained based upon approval would include everything from Orlistat to Fentramine and Topiramate, Liraglutide, semaglutide, or metformin, 
um, or would this be a referral for metabolic and bariatric surgery? And so this is really important for us to think about. Um, now, Angie, you know, what do you think about this as, as, as we really think about this? Do you feel like this is a good option, you know, all of these options to be entertained? Absolutely. And Marcos is actually based on a patient from my practice. And, you know, this is exactly what we did. We started family centered. We made sure that everybody was on the same page with him. Um, and we we did. We we started the intensive health behavior lifestyle treatment. But we also started talking very early about whether or not pharmacotherapy was something that he and his his mom was the one who came to most of his appointments would be willing to consider as well as started to talk about the fact that he was eligible and met the criteria for metabolic and bariatric surgery. So, you know, I think that shared decision-making is part of what makes it non-stigmatizing and really helps the patient and his mother have the information they need to be able to start making decisions um, for his health. And so all of these are great ideas that we actually did present to them. I appreciate that you gave them the full, I guess, tapestry of what we could consider. And I really think that's extremely important um, and is exactly what we would want to ensure that people have comprehensive um, treatment strategies and that shared decision making is, you know, you hit the nail on the head there. I think that's extremely important. So let me just move forward as we think about weight loss outcomes with FDA approved medications. Now, we're using some of the adult data here. So you'll see some of the information being pulled from the Journal of the American Medical Association um, and the New England Journal of Medicine. And what I want you to do is look at when we're looking at kind of this gray line, which or, which or gray bar, which would be a placebo versus medication. Look at percent weight loss here on this axis. And this is total body weight loss, looking at, you know, 100 being total and what that percentage is. So when we're looking at Orlistat, you can see that we're looking at about um, 5% here, um, weight loss with that. Um, liraglutide, right, we're getting into about 6.5% total body weight loss. Um, let's jump over to semaglutide, for example. And this is why you've heard so much in the news all day, every day about this medication. We're looking at about 15% um, percent or more total body weight loss. And then if we compare that with the thing that came closest to it before this kind of onslaught of this new category of medications, our GLP-1 receptor agonists, you can see fentraminotopyramate, which of course is now currently approved for the treatment of um, obesity in pediatrics. So I wanna just remind you that all of these agents, Orlistat, liraglutide, semaglutide, and fentraminotopyramate are approved for age 12 and above here for the treatment of obesity in the pediatric population. And I do want to really highlight some of the data. And we talked about, and you guys did a really good job of answering, 27%, if I can remember exactly, looked at this once-weekly semaglutide in adolescents. This was the STEP-TEENS trial. And this was looking at specifically adolescents with a BMI greater than the 95th percentile or a BMI greater than the 85th percentile with one weight-related coexisting condition, something like type 2 diabetes or hypertension, for example. And I want us to look at what we're looking at when we're comparing semaglutide, a treatment set. So the group of that group was 134 individuals versus placebo, where we see 67 individuals. And as you guys really did a great job answering, we saw that there was 16.1% change, um, an estimated difference of 16.7 percentage points when compared to placebo. Remembering when we're looking at statistics, anything less than a P of 0.05 is statistically significant. So this is highly significant. 
I want us to look at the participants here in comparing the semaglutide group versus the placebo group and looking at the reduction in body weight of greater than 5% at 68. And you can see that 73 individuals um, were able to achieve at least 5% total body weight loss compared um, to only 18 here in the placebo group. Now, one of the key things that people want to know about are what are some of these adverse side effects? Um, and what we can see here is that we're looking at um, GI adverse events and we're comparing the semaglutide treatment group versus placebo. We do see higher levels of GI adverse events, any disorder being higher than those on placebo, but notice the placebo was not um, a small number. I think we should just point out here. Now, nausea is by far the number one side effect from semaglutide, and you'll notice here, um, 42 participants versus 18 in the placebo group, followed by vomiting, which you can see 36 in the treatment group versus the placebo group. And let's look at some of the summary, particularly if we're looking at the agents that are approved for the treatment of obesity um, in the pediatric population. I really wanna look at the safety and tolerability of these agents for treating obesity. So we're gonna first look at those GLP-1 receptor agonists that are approved for the treatment of obesity in pediatrics. Um, these are semaglutide, that once weekly injection versus liraglutide, a once daily injection. Now, there are some complete contraindications, which include multiple, multiple endocrine neoplasia type two. If there is a personal or family history of medullary thyroid cancer, there's a potential risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. In pregnancy, we do highly recommend stopping these medications at least two months before planned pregnancies to account for the long half-life. These medicines can remain in the system for quite some time, and two months appears to be kind of the, the longer end of that duration. Now, when we're looking at adverse events, we talked about this on that previous slide when we're looking at the STEP teens trial. We have GI adverse events, um, but also nausea, diarrhea, vomiting, constipation, abdominal pain, headache, fatigue, dyspepsia, which means kind of a sense of kind of burping and things of that sort, and injection site reactions, meaning where is the needle um, giving the medication. Now let's switch gears and talk about the medication that was shown to be second in terms of the level of efficacy, which is this combination medicine of fentramine and topiramate. Um, a lot of people have a lot of fear about fentramine, but I want to recognize that fentramine, which was part of that fen-fen combination in the 90s, is no longer what we should be worried about. Um, and fentramine has remained on the market since 1959 when it was first approved by the FDA. Now, contraindications for the use of these medications particularly are glaucoma, hyperthyroidism, which is an overactive thyroid, using during um, MAOIs, um, which is types of medicines, and pregnancy. Here again, pregnancy, you see that bolded, pregnancy contraindication to the use of these meds. Um, there's a risk of fetal malformation, including cleft palate and cleft lip, um, and that's primarily secondary to the topiramate component. And when we look at adverse events, um, we see paresthesias, um, dizziness, dyscusia, um, insomnia, constipation, and dry mouth, which actually is the most common side effect. Now, Orlistat, which um, is not something that you hear about as much, but is available at your local drugstore and also available by prescription. Um, contraindications chronic malabsorption syndrome and cholestasis. And then what have we seen consistently? Pregnancy, pregnancy, pregnancy. Consistently, contraindication. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Now, in terms of adverse effects, we have abdominal pain and discomfort, 
oily spotting and stool and fecal urgency, right? These are things that we would not like as it relates to these particular medications. And these are the ones currently approved for the treatment of obesity in the pediatric population. Now let's return to Marcos and find out about how he's doing. Um, from what I'm understanding, and I'm gonna bring um, Dr. Golden in here, Marcos was started on semaglutide, that's that um, medicine we just talked about in that step teens trial. He initially experiences some mild nausea, but after six weeks, it subsides, and he's encouraged to walk five times a week for at least 30 minutes, which is what our Apple Watches want us to do, right? He receives nutritional counseling, and his family now has access to fresh fruits and vegetables, through a local food desert relief program. This is great. And after six months, his weight was 204.3 pounds, which represented a 10% loss, and his acanthosis, nigricans, was resolved. A lot of patients, particularly pediatric patients, will present, and their entire reason for being seen is to get rid of that dark discoloration off of their neck. Tell me what I need to do. I don't really care about losing weight. I just want that spot off my neck. Mm -hmm. And this is what happened with him. Um, Dr. Golden, anything you want to chime in here for? So I think the only thing I chime in for is that um, with Marcos, we did not do 30 minutes at a time for walking. We we broke that down into 10 minute time frames. He wasn't a big fan of walking. And so, but 10 minute breaks, he felt like he could do. And so we we broke it down like that. I think that was, and I think sometimes that's a big deal. We all kind of think, okay, 30 minutes, we got to talk patients into that and individualizing it. That was a really important point for him was to individualize what he needed to do. Um, and I will tell you that he was so excited to not have that darkened skin. Um, he, th as far as he was concerned, he was, he it was a success. He didn't care if he lost another pound. He was so excited to no longer have that discoloration when he had to go into the locker room for PE. Oh, that's lovely. Well, let's now move into our final section on non-stigmatizing communication with children, adolescents, and families. This is an area that both Dr. Golden and I are particularly passionate about. And so I'm gonna turn this over to Dr. Golden to take us through. Great, thank you. And you're right, we are. I, I think we would probably arm wrestle to get this section. <laughs> this section addresses our third learning objective, which is engage in empathetic, non-stigmatizing communication with adolescents about long-term obesity or weight management. But let's start with that ARS question. Patient-focused interviewing and care is an example of which of the following? Cultural humility, health equity, implicit bias, social determinants of health, or I'm not sure. Love seeing all these responses come in. Great, so the correct answer is A, which is cultural humility. And we're gonna spend a few minutes here actually talking about that. To define cultural humil humility, I think it's helpful to also mention cultural competence because that's what a lot of us actually think cultural humil humility is. Many of us have learned a little bit about cultures, and but it's usually a generalization about that culture. Cultural humility is much more than this. 
it's really about examining our own beliefs and and being being someone who's ready to learn from individuals in that culture that are different from our own. So what you see as a statement in green is cultural humility. In red might be considered cultural confidence statement. Fatima, I know that this is one of your favorite slides. So how about if you take us through this one? Absolutely, and I wanna thank Dr. Rebecca Poole who um, really led this work and is really um, just phenomenal. And when we think about weight stigma and bias and its impact, um, there's first one thing that I, I wanna point out is that there's a vicious cycle that happens when someone is subject to weight stigma in our own clinic settings and, and, and just everyday life. And, and this, this um, slide, which I'll go through with you now, will help us to understand. And one thing we haven't per se mentioned, but I would be remiss not to mention, is just the language we use when we communicate about the disease of obesity is really important. So Dr. Gold and I have been very, very, very particular during this um, talk and, and every communication, whether we're behind closed doors or in front of you today, of using people-first language when we're discussing obesity. So you have not heard us use the word obese for me to just not tell you not to use that word. We've eliminated that from our lexicon. These are patients with obesity. Um, we've also taken out the word morbid as it relates to obesity. We don't call it morbid cancer, COVID-19, morbid heart disease, morbid diabetes. We should not be using that stigmatizing language. These are patients with obesity, a disease that we can treat as we're learning today. So let's talk about what happens when a patient experiences weight stigma. That weight stigma leads to stress and it actually affects eating and physical activity behaviors. We see binge eating, increased caloric consumption, maladaptive weight control, disordered eating, a decreased motivation for exercise, and a subsequently less physical activity. Now, what a lot of people don't know is that this isn't just, you know, people need to get over themselves. This actually affects their physiologic changes that are going on in their body. So we see increased levels of cortisol, which we know to be one of the key stress hormones, C-reactive protein, and we see higher hemoglobin A1C levels. Also, we see elevated blood pressure. So this, this is actually affecting what's going on internally. Now, when a person experiences weight stigma, this affects how they interact with us in healthcare. So we see poor treatment adherence, less trust of us as healthcare providers, avoidance of follow-up care, a delay in preventive health screenings and poor communication, because why would you wanna go see a healthcare provider that doesn't treat you with the dignity, kindness and respect that you deserve and how we would treat other people with other chronic diseases. And that's extremely important. Now, all of this leads to weight gain. What does that lead to? Psychological health and distress, where we see depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, poor body image, substance abuse, and unfortunately, even suicidality. So that is something that we can't discount. We are losing people just because they're experiencing stigma and often in our own healthcare settings. This leads to physiologic health and distress where we see poor glycemic control, less effective chronic disease self-management, more advanced and poorly controlled chronic disease, and a lower health-related quality of life. If that's not enough to convince you that this is something that we need to address, I'm not sure what I could do to convince you, but I can tell you that my goal is to treat my patients just like I would wanna be treated. And if you are not doing that, I ask you to really reevaluate it. What would you want if you were sitting in that chair, in that office? And if you're not providing that level of care, 
I think you should consider going back to the drawing board and just providing that high level of care. Now, thanks, I'll Dr. push it back over. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Sanford. You know, I think you could hear the passion that she has for this, and both of us feel like if you take nothing else away from this talk tonight, we'd ask that you take back to your patients the ability to approach them from a, a, an empathetic place because of their obesity. So many of our patients with obesity tell horror stories of how they've been treated by healthcare providers. So we would ask, and we know that because you're here, you're one of those healthcare providers that has that empathy already. So let's let's talk a little bit more about how being a culturally congruent provider can provide care in a way that really creates the agreement of the care being provided. So an example of this in obesity is to assure that patients and families understand that obesity is not a sign of laziness or a lack of willpower, that it's a chronic endocrine disorder. We can empower and engage our patients by using person-first language, as you just heard. A disclosure that's not in my slides anywhere is that I'm a woman living with obesity. I'm not an obese woman. I'm not labeled by my disease. I have a chronic disease, so I'm a woman with obesity. It's important that we can explain about the disease of obesity and how the treatment impacts that pathophysiology. I mentioned before using shared decision-making. That allows patients to bring their own preferences, their own culture into the decisions for eating plans and activities. Both of these are often family plans. And then with those options that are there, and now we have options from the past three years of medication that need to be discussed, we need to be sure that we're keeping at the forefront all that we've learned about the individual patient and their social determinants of health. Absolutely, um, Angie. And I know that you absolutely love this uh, model. Um, and so I do want to present it kind of on your behalf, Angie. Um, and this is the six A's, um, the model for weight management counseling. And let's take you through what these six A's are when you're really interacting with this patient population. Number one, you want to ask. Ask for permission to discuss weight. This isn't something that maybe everyone wants to discuss, and so you want to ask um, permission, and then want to ask about preferred terms. They may have certain terms and how they would like to be addressed, and you want to make sure that you're thinking about that. Um, con consider the social determinants of health, and listen and avoid paternalism, which is just you do this, you do this, you do this, right? Like let's listen to what they want to do. Um, think about your own personal biases, and if anyone here says they have no bias. You're not human. You maybe you're an AI, but even AI has bias. So everyone has bias, including our AI algorithms. Um, we want to, you know, think about stigmatizing loosen, um, language and diagnosis. And what do we mean by that? I get many charts that I look through, and and Dr. Golden, tell me if you've seen this. Obese abdomen. What, what does that even mean? Obese abdomen, right? What we would want to use is central adiposity, right? We want to talk about that they have fat stored in that region please stop using obese abdomen. Um, similarly, if patients are carrying weight in their hip, buttock, or thigh region, that's gluteal femoral adiposity. That is exactly explaining where they're carrying that extra adipose. 
Um, and then think about your electronic health records. Our ICD-10 codes often have stigmatizing codes, but we can change those. And I can tell you with ICD-11, we are gonna see a major shift. But even when I get a chart that's an ICD-10, I will change and take away obesity due to excess calories. Is, is that really why? You know, Maybe it's multifactorial weight gain, for example. So really think about these things. We wanna assess. We wanna look at that pre-encounter and pre-screen data. We want to look at weight-related comorbidities and, and also listen to what patients' expectations are. They may come in with set expectations. Sometimes we need to um, make sure that the expectations are, are realistic. Um, we want to use an obesity-centered exam. Um, and then you'll see this term here, which is OPQRST, which is looking at onset, precipitating factors, quality of life, remedy, setting, and a temporal pattern. Let's go over to our third um, A, which is advising, looking at positive aspects of U, um, obesity care, thinking about the USPSTF guidelines, which do utilize BMI, which we've heard come under fire quite a bit lately, um, the challenges of managing weight, um, and looking at issues related to shared decision-making. This is something that Dr. Golden has mentioned time and time again, that shared decision-making, take into account the individual in front of you, the family in front of you, and respecting if the patient's not interested at this time. Not everyone is going to be ready and engaged, and maybe they will become. Maybe like Marcos, it was the impetus to come in is because that dark discoloration, that acanthosis nigricans was really the impetus, not necessarily the weight itself. Number four, we want to agree. We want to do um, trust and use that shared decision-making, respond to patient cues, and we do want to consider patient culture and religion. This is something that, that Dr. Golden mentioned quite a bit with her particular patient. Um, and that's something I think about when I'm working with um, my patients, which come from a variety of um, cultural backgrounds, racial ethnic backgrounds, and that's important. Um, when we're looking at goals, looking at SMART goals, and looking at treatment choices and efficacy, much like we did with Marcos here, there was, there was a variety of things we could have applied. Really, all treatment modalities applied to his situation, but, you know, looking at what works and what works more likely in a patient with the degree of severity of obesity he had. Um, now we can look at number five, which is to assist. We wanna present options electronically and written materials, and we wanna leverage the entire team. This is not a just one person sport. You can see we have the registered dietitians, we have those licensed clinical social workers, behavioral health specialists, obesity specialists. Sometimes we're even bringing in those that do metabolic and bariatric surgeon, surgery, so our surgeons. So it's a, a really a team-based approach um, when uh, treating this disease. And then finally, our final um, A, which is to arrange. We have to have follow-up. You heard when we're doing particularly that intensive behavioral therapy, a lot of follow-up is needed. We want to look at appropriate referrals and look at regional resources. Um, for you as healthcare providers, what are um, the reimbursement frameworks. What are some obesity specialty practices, particularly if it gets out of the scope of what you feel comfortable addressing? And think about the coordination of care, um, and that's as needed. So this is really, really important. And finally, um, if we couldn't get enough about bias, I do want to talk specifically about what it's like to be a racial and ethnic minority like myself and, and look at those disparities and implicit bias and how they play a role. We know that racial inequities are pervasive in U.S. medical care um, and that provider inactions with patients of color um, are less patient-centered, with fewer requests for patient and family input about treatment decisions. Equitable medication uptake and utilization um, should be available amongst all racial ethnic individuals and those from all socioeconomic groups.
Um, I do encourage you, if you've never done this, um, here at Harvard, we have something called the Implicit Association Test. You can actually go for free and take the Implicit Association Test. Now, regarding this particular topic, there is one for weight and there's one for race and ethnicity. And you might be shocked to find that you have biases yourself, but change begins with self. And I would say that taking this test it's, is one of the key things that can help drive us to providing the empathetic level of care we have for patients both with obesity and those from racial and ethnic minority groups. And so I really wanna um, think about that. Um, and, you know, we wanna talk about these SMART goals. You know, we talked a little bit about that when I was going through the A's a little bit before. These are specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. So we wanna measure height and weight, and we wanna calculate body mass index and look at that percentile, looking at those growth charts. And you'll notice that Dr. Golden used these expanded growth charts. We don't wanna use a growth chart where the weight just stays the same and we assume that we, we can't plot up above the 95th percentile. For individuals with obesity, we do need those expanded growth charts to really get a sense of the severity of the disease. Um, we wanna ask adolescents, their parents, guardians about social determinants of health that can really impact nutrition, physical and mental health, and access to care. And we do want to incorporate the American Academy of Pediatrics treatment guidelines, including FDA-approved medications when appropriate, um, into updated clinical pathways for adolescent care. You want to use that 6A model that we talked about for weight management counseling using non-stigmatizing language to empower and engage patients and families. And test yourself. Test yourself with that implicit bias chart. Um, Angie, I want to thank you so much for this important discussion today. I really think that this has been um, something that we're very passionate about, obviously, um, but it's, there's so much going on in this space, and we really wanted to make sure that we're providing um, the best possible knowledge to those of you who are caring for these patient populations about what is the current standard of care. And so, Angie, I just want to thank you so much. And great to be with you, and I'm looking forward to the questions that are coming. Absolutely. So now before we get into our questions, which are coming, Dr. Golden, they're going to come, we want to revisit our three audience response questions to see how we do now. So let's go to that first question, which is, which of the following American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations include evaluating a child's access to nutritious foods? Is it mental and behavioral health screening, annual measurement of body mass index, social determinants of health? the physical exam, or you're still not sure after listening to us for the last 45 minutes. All right, so let's, um, I can't really scroll down somehow, um, but it looks, we know that the correct answer here is social determinants of health. Um, I'm having a hard time seeing the, the pre and post for that particular answer choice, um, but that is the answer choice. Hopefully you guys got that. Dr. Golden presented that beautifully. Um, and so let's move on to our next question. So Fatima, I can see that our pre-test yeah, okay. was 56% and our post-test was 88%. 88, so a B, not quite an A. I would say 90% or more. So thanks for seeing that because I can't, it's not showing on my screen for some reason. All right, thanks so much. You guys did much better. I'm so excited. So let's go to our next audience response. 
And that is the STEP team study showed that adolescents with obesity receiving once weekly 2.4 milligrams subcutaneous semaglutide along with lifestyle interventions achieved what percentage change in body mass at um, week 68 versus placebo? Was it 7%, 12%, 16%, 23% or I'm not sure. What do you guys think? Um, and we're getting those participants answering. You guys are doing a great job. I love this enthusiasm. Even more response here. So this is great. All right, All pre correct answer of 16%, pre-test was 27%, post-test, woohoo, we're way up there, 84%. I'm still waiting to get above 90, though, above 90, That's but we're true. doing good, we're doing better, we're doing better, and so let's go to our final question, um, and this is something that Dr. Golden presented also in a lovely fashion, patient-focused interviewing and care is an example of which of the following, is it cultural humility, health equity, implicit bias, social determinants of health, or I'm not sure. Let's give you guys a few moments to do that. All right, Dr. Golden, there is an improvement. 22 Big improvement. Pre, pre and 80% post that cultural humility that you talked about. So that is fabulous. All right, so we're gonna move in questions and we see a robust volume already here. Um, you can please select the ask question tab below the slide viewer. Please include um, the faculty member's name if the question is specifically for um, or I'm gonna, you know, for them. So I just wanna let you guys know that. So let's pop over to looking at some of our questions. We're gonna try to take as, as many of these as possible. I'm gonna actually um, start kind of um, looking at this and I'm gonna um, go to Marcos in the dietary history, um, although I'm gonna change the way they worded this because they had some stigmatizing language. It says that both Marcos' parents have severe obesity and his sister has worsening obesity, would a family intervention make sense? And if so, how would you initiate that? Um, Dr. Golden, you, I mean, I, I'm happy to answer it. Would you, would you like to answer it? Well, I think first and foremost, I'm going to go back to that six A's. I wouldn't initiate it unless the family all wanted it. Marcos is specifically there as my patient and his mom is with me. So I absolutely would offer for the whole family to be in treatment. And if the family was interested, then that would be fabulous. And we absolutely could do that. Um, but at first, I would start with the five, the six A's and ask first so that I'm respectful of them. And if they did all want to do it, then I would do a group visit. And we'd, we'd start with some of the basic information about obesity and how to move forward with it in a group visit so that the whole family is involved. And we can have a lot of group discussion around it that way, too. Absolutely. And I'm going to answer the next question, which is it best to just start with the new CDC extended growth charts for any patient who's visibly overweight? Um, and so I would say that we are sometimes fooled by our visual inspection. 
Um, so maybe, you know, since such a, you know, a sizable percentage of the population does have obesity, we could just use these, right? Because they would still apply for individuals that aren't on these. So I would just use these for everyone, not just people that visibly appear um, overweight, because sometimes we're really off in our estimates. So that's, that's how I would answer that specifically. Um, now, I also, I also think yeah. there's another reason to use that. If that becomes the normal chart that you're using, then if one child in the family does have obesity and another one doesn't, they're not getting two separate types of charts when they get printed out for the family. So, again, we don't pull out the obesity side of it. It just looks the same. Yeah. So I, I, love, I that. love that idea of just using that for everybody. Yeah. Well, okay, excellent. Now, Dr. Golden, the next question is, what do you use for mental and behavioral health screening when evaluating adolescents? Wow, that's a great point. And I think it is really important because of how much stigma, there's so much bullying of our adolescents with obesity that it's critical that we're using screening tools. I mean, you can start with just the PHQ-9. In mm -hmm. the older adolescents, especially, that's, that's pretty well accepted to screen for, for depression in those kids. But you can also just ask them. You know, have they experienced bullying? How are they feeling? You know, just just have an honest conversation. And in my setting where we have a multidisciplinary center, a lot of that work is being done by our psychologists. So we have five, five full-time PhD level psychologists that evaluate um, our pediatric patients with obesity. And so they're doing a deep dive. Um, those appointments range from 45 minutes to an hour for the initial assessment. So for those that require a deeper level of intervention, those multidisciplinary um, centers like ours would be appropriate. Um, now, the next question is, how do you treat kids with a normal hemoglobin A1C and an abnormal insulin? So I'm thinking an elevated or hyperinsulinism. Um, what, what would you do in this situation, um, Dr. Golden? Well, I think like we do for, for most of our patients with elevated insulin levels, you know, we start to look at the fact that that's the beginning of the range over to diabetes. So, of course, metformin always comes to mind if they're old enough for us to use that with them. And it seems like the age keeps falling for metformin, so it's pretty easy to go with that. And, again, I think that it's it's one of the reasons. And, frequently, the kids with acanthus um, nigricans do not have prediabetes, but they do have the beginning of insulin resistance. Absolutely. And so that I'm going to answer the next question, because the next question since you, um, is about acanthosis, nigricans. Is it more prevalent in certain ethnicities? I would say that you can definitely see it more on darker skin like mine. Um, so someone that is um, of African descent, someone that has a Hispanic descent, we can see this more prominently displayed. Um, and so that is the answer to that question. Um, so moving right along, we have a lot. I'm trying to get through as many as I can in the minutes we have. Um, one of the questions, and, and maybe I can answer this, and um, it says, uh, Dr. Golden, also, when and how do you bring up surgical options with patients and families? Um, so by the time people get to me as, as an obesity medicine physician in a multidisciplinary center, um, many patients have tried a lot of other strategies, particularly in the lifestyle and behavioral realm. And so many people may be referred directly for consideration for metabolic and bariatric surgery. Um, which we, you know, perform usually as early as 12 or 13. 
Um, the, but sometimes they're not. Um, actually, sometimes they're just coming and the primary care or, or specialty provider sends them over um, to me and I begin to address what treatment tool might be most effective depending upon the severity of their disease. Dr. Golden, any thoughts there? So I think as a community provider, not in a multidisciplinary program like you have, um, I, just, I just broach it like I do with medication. Here are the options that are available based on the severity of your disease. And then we talk about each one of those options and we wait to see in that shared decision making, which option do they feel most comfortable trying first or going down the path? And, you know, so for some of some of my adolescents who have had severe obesity for seven, eight, nine, ten years, yes. they're they're ready to to have a larger impact in treatment. And so they're they're interested in exploring more about surgery when they're at that 14, 15, 16 year old range. Absolutely. And it's a tough decision. It's tough for the parents to make that decision. And so I'm not saying the first meeting, they're off to the surgical. It usually takes quite a few. And in the meantime, we're doing medical management of obesity while right. we're waiting for the family to have those discussions at home to maybe make their first appointment with the surgeon and have an actual discussion there so that they can find out what does this really entail and what's the lifetime event going to look like for them. So in the meantime, though, we're still doing medical management. Got it. I'm going to answer the next question. It says, do the cardiovascular benefits with GLP-1 receptor agonists apply to adolescents and provide continuing protection as adults? Absolutely. Um, of course, the data is more robust on the adult side, right? We've been using GLP-1 receptor agonists for adults since 2005 when exanatide first came out. So we have more robust data on that side. But what we can see, particularly if we're looking at cardiovascular benefits, is we see um, a reduction in MACE, which is major adverse coronary events, fatal and non-fatal strokes, fatal and non-fatal heart, um, heart attacks. We see improvement in kidney composite outcomes, admissions for heart failure. I mean, the list goes on, and these are significant um, in meta-analyses, not just one study. Um, but like I said, the data is much more robust on the adult side, particularly looking at this long-term data, because we haven't seen that degree of length of use um, in the pediatric population. Now, the next question, um, uh, Angie, states that how do you calculate the BMI percentile beyond the BMI growth curve? That was a question that was posed. So I think the easiest way is to do the MD calc calculator. <laughs> you put in your two numbers, height and weight, and it calculates it for you. I, I mean, I find that easier than trying to plot it and then trying to figure out where I am on the percentage line of the graph. It also creates the graph at the same time, so you have something that you can share with the family. So that's how I do it, That's and I think it's the easiest way to do it. All right, I'm going to rapid fire the next two because the third one is for you specifically, Dr. Bolden. So it's for an adolescent who refuses injection with semaglutide oral be an option. I would say that we don't have any approval for oral semaglutide for either adults or pediatric patients, so that would not be what I would entertain um, for that reason. And then how do you decide between liraglutide versus semaglutide? What is the role of Orlistat and how long do you use it before you change or add on another therapy? Um, obviously, a lot of this comes down to access and what people have access to. Um, some insurers um, will um, approve both liraglutide and semaglutide. We do know that semaglutide has a much higher efficacy on average, right? 
we're looking at about six and a half percent total body weight loss versus 15 to 16, right, for adolescents. So those are sizable differences. Um, Orlistat, I will say that most of us um, don't use that as frequently because the side effects are relatively high, the efficacy is relatively low. But if it does work for an individual, you would use this indefinitely, just like you would any of these other therapies. Now, Dr. Golden, next question is specifically for you. It says this here. How do you address the limited access to food availability, Dr. Golden, is what it specifically states. So what we did is we started a program to find out how to get deliveries of fresh fruits and vegetables in an area that did not have a grocery store. And as it turns out, not something I knew before this, um, there are actually programs all over the United States that farmers participate in, and food will actually be brought in to small little convenience stores so that fresh fruits and vegetables become available to communities. And we're talking inner city as well as rural communities. And it, you can do this through grant funding that it really wasn't hard to write the grant. And that's how we were able to do it for this community. So not only did we get the advantage for this particular patient, but we had an advantage for their entire community. Absolutely. We have like 58 seconds, so I'm going to talk very fast, but I do want to answer this question regarding offering bariatric surgery to people over 13 with severe obesity. Have you followed these patients and seen adverse effects years later um, or resentment for having the procedure so young? Absolutely not. I've actually published several papers where my patients' voices are heard. I will tell you my current nurse practitioner who cares for my patients in the weight center here at Mass General was my pediatric patient. She did have bariatric surgery as an adolescent. She was told she'd never have kids. She now has two kids, and she now cares for patients with obesity. Um, and she still is my patient and follow with me. Um, now we have 23 seconds, so I'm going to switch back um, to the presentation. Thank you guys for so many questions. So sorry we couldn't get to all of them, um, but we're so excited that you had so many. Um, Dr. Golden, amazing discussion. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I do want to remind everyone to visit our virtual education hub for free resources and educations um, with regards to healthcare professionals and patients. That's at cmeoutfitters.com slash virtual-education-hub. And to receive credit, because we're giving credit, we want to make sure that you complete that post-test and evaluation online. So you can just click on the request credit tab and complete that to process and print your certificate. And I want to thank all of you for attending the CME Outfitters Evaluation, Treatment, and Non-Stigmatizing Care for Adolescents with Obesity, Critical Components of Future Health. I want you to have a wonderful evening, and thanks for being with us tonight.